Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you something, people. It's um, it's really crazy out here right now, the weather. And, you know, growing up back east, you know, Joanne just moved out here from California, from New Jersey. And I still have a lot of winter clothes from when I was going by coastal for the last year and a half. And it's supposed to be 90 today in Burbank. And it's just really awful because I'm growing this, you know, the November beard where you have to sit there for the men's health, the beard awareness for men's health. And it's coming in thick. And what do we get? We get really hot weather. So hopefully it will change. I don't want to sound like I'm bitching because I know they got snow back east, but that's all that counts. Anyway, enough about that. We have a man with who has my guest has facial hair today too, which yes. a lot of people do. We have a very, uh, he's a comic. He's a writer. He's an author. I guess it's different. You're a TV writer. You're a play writer. Yep. You're an author. You're an all kind of writer. We have Rick Nahara. How you doing, Rick? Hey, it's good to see you. Glad he could come in. It's so funny. I, I did a lot of. Uh, I was doing some research on you, and uh, now you grew up in the San Diego area. Yeah, I grew okay. up in uh, Southern California. I was. I'm a second generation Californian. My son's a third generation. Okay, so we go. We go back here a long time. So now you, you're you're from a Mexican descent. Yes. Now, so I'm, or, or ascent. I like to ascent. say. Yeah, yes, <laughs> that's very true. Say descent sounds like I'm going. Yeah, down, you're right. Down you're right. You're right. That's, that's a good. That's a, Mexican a good thing. ascent. I uh, know. What's funny is um, when I think about it, because you know we're around the same age, and um, you know, because you did get into comedy, and I know for yeah. me, one of my, and I know later in, in uh, Latino Logs, Cheech directed it. Yeah. But for me, as a uh, kid, one of the big things in comedy was my older brother would play Cheech and Chong wedding album and it's so funny and and back then it was like and I honestly I grew up 10 minutes from Philadelphia New Jersey Mm. we had maybe one Latino in our town and but we never it was so funny because some people would think it was Latino humor but for us we just thought it was so damn funny and we we never made a distinction it was just weird I mean for you what was it like you know, for me, I, I I heard Cheech early on. I mean, I was like, you know, Dave's not here. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of thing. Right. And uh, I mean, yeah, it was hilarious to to hear him. And it's funny to be directed by him years later on Broadway. Um, you know, he's he's like a, he's a legend, and is and and is, and is a great guy. You know, you 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 meet Cheech, he's super smart. I remember one night we went out for dinner, and it was him and Geraldo Rivera, which I thought was the oddest coupling. But he's very good friends with Geraldo, and and hanging out with those two guys, I felt like the, the little brother. Just listened to a great conversation. Really smart. Cheech is pretty much a genius, and he won Celebrity Jeopardy, which a lot of people don't know. So, which that's you have to be smart because they have some you, very smart people in there you too. Be smart. So whatever people want to say about marijuana, it did not affect him because he's pretty smart. Well, you know what's so funny, and, and it's just how culture has changed. You know, and, and I've said this before, like because I also listened to you know Toledo Window Box by Carlin, and my parents had no idea what a Toledo Window Box was. Yeah. They had no idea that Cheech and Chong were about marijuana because they they didn't yeah. they didn't they they didn't they looked after us but they didn't care it was an album yeah. and what's funny is now when you think about it they were always stoned on the cds and I, but as a kid i didn't i just thought it was funny stuff yeah I, I think a lot of times you know like my my kids watch family guy and they're not getting all the innuendo i'm getting <laughs> right I'm, that's how old are you your know, kids yeah they're one one's ten six and and five so the uh the old man there's always, yeah, she talks like this. And he's like, right. hey, you want to look for a lollipop? It's in my pocket. And I, I'm thinking, this is a major pervert. My sons are just thinking it's funny. You know, right. They don't get that, which kind of scares me. So I'm just saying, any man tells you to go look for a lollipop in their pocket, don't do it. Um, so they're teaching them bad things. But they, they love the comedy and the humor. I think comedy and really good comedy, it, it, it transcends age and time and everything else. And, and the audience gets each part that fits them. You know, at that time as a kid... I, I wasn't a stoner, and um, but you know I thought it was just pretty funny, and and I think my parents, they had no idea, no, they never knew what I was listening to half the time. I was a latchkey kid. But. 
now, now, when did you start listening to comedy? I mean, what, what made you gravitate, or even thinking that you were going to do it? I mean, I remember I bought a Lenny Bruce album once again, which I saw at a bin, which yeah. I didn't really even get. You know, it's, I thought it was cool. I heard it. I was like, oh, this is cool. But when did you start listening to the comedy? Because you, you... Well, my, my big comedy influences, I, I started off at 17. I was a, a classical actor at the Old Globe Theater. I worked in the Globe Education Tour, and I did all that stuff. And 18, and uh, I met Whoopi Goldberg. And Whoopi Goldberg was a big influence on me because she lived in San Diego at the time. And we both got Second City Improv Chicago was coming in to do, shoot a special on mental health. And when they did, they were looking for two unknowns. And so they got me and Whoopi Goldberg. So Whoopi since has become pretty well known. But oh, yeah. at, at that time, no, she was a single mother with a, with a baby and, and a real you know, New York attitude. So I had a lot of fun with her and I, I watched her. And, and her thing was she wasn't going to wait for a job. She'd make it. So she did her one-woman show, which became a huge hit. And that was a big lesson for me. So I did my one-man show years later um, after San Francisco. It was called The Pain of the Macho. And it went to the Goodman Theater in Chicago. And, and that series had John Leguizamo, myself, and Spalding Gray. And from there I got you know TV offers. And then I started writing in Living Color and you know some really good shows. So it was, it was, it was always, I've always been torn between being the writer and being the comic. Well, I think that happens a lot. I think if you can do both, a lot of people can't really do both. And you, know, you, you, if you, you sit there and you sit there and you, if you have a comedic background or and you also yeah. act, you sit there and go, "Well, I could deliver those lines." Because when you write it, you see what it's saying. You, you it speaks to you. But yeah. when you see someone, you're like, "Well, maybe that person's right." But I think it's also just a little bit in us. We're like, "Well, I think I would do it better." But even though you may not think you will. You just you go go that way. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I I would I started writing material because I just didn't like the roles I was playing. I was a Latino in Hollywood, so I was playing every single drug lord there was. I was you know I played a drug lord opposite George Clooney, and a film called Red Surf back in the day, and I was the Cuban drug lord, which is the highest form of drug lord there is because they can sing and dance and come from the Desi Arnaz Babalu school. So I, w- I was a fun drug lord, and um, I just went, you know, I can't keep doing these roles. They're just so limited. And after doing a movie where I was a lead, um, I had no offers, whereas George and a lot of the white guys had tons of offers. So I said the only way I'm really going to keep up and, and survive in this business was write my own roles. So then that's when the writing started. And I was encouraged by uh, John Wells, who created, you know, um, West Wing and shows right. like that. So he was my neighbor. And then I thought of Whoopi, who had encouraged me and said, yeah, I should be writing. So it was like a lot of really famous, good people were telling me to write. And after a while, I was like, oh, maybe I should. So I got in the Warner Brothers writing program, and then from there came uh, In Living Color. Now, as a kid, though, did you did you perform? I mean, you said 17, but as, as a kid, did you sit there? Because did you think you would end up following this career path you have? As a kid, were you were – you, did you admire comedy? Because like, a lot of kids watched it, or did you just sit there and – as you got older, people said, hey, Rick, you're funny. Or, I mean, how did that, did you know from a little age that you were like, I got, I'm fascinated? I was not funny at all. Okay. I was very serious. I was like, in fact, I was so serious. Um, they got a note from school, told my parents when I was just a kid, was Rick doesn't speak. And I didn't talk. And so finally, they get another note going, please tell Rick to shut up. Because they tell me, you got to talk now. So I started talking. And um, I was very introverted, and I really thought things out. I was very sensitive. And, and so I grew up in a family of five you know, fellow Mexican kids. And uh, to get attention in that kind of family, I went with my father to a movie because he would take me to a movie. And it was a beautiful Shakespearean film. And he said, if you spoke like that, I'd be very proud of you. And I remembered that. So I started studying Shakespeare. And then from Shakespeare, um, 
people thought it was funny. I didn't think I was funny. And so I started getting roles that were more comedic. And then from there, I got a great break in doing the Second City. Um, I, it was simple. They, they said, you audition for Second City. And I said, fine, I'm auditioning. And they said, it's, but it's improv. And I said, well, I don't, I don't really know improv. And they said, well, the secret to improv is say yes. So I met the guys from Second City, and these are like Severn Darden and Avery Shriver and Jack Wright, all these big names at that time. And, and I said, um, they said, can you do improv? I said, yes, I can. Uh, would I do an improv now? Yes, I would. <laughs> so I just basically said, yes, start the improv. And they turned around, and they said, you got the job. So when I got on the set, I couldn't, I looked so young. I must have been 19 at that point. So I, could, I would write scenes about guys in bars. I, I didn't even look like I could fit in a bar. <laughs> so, so I started noticing. So what happened was, you know, I, I came from that, you know, junior theater kid mentality that you could write any role and you're, you know, you're going to be a banker. You right. Know, you're, you're, you're 15. You're, you're, <laughs> yeah, you're like, the head of a CEO corporation. Yeah, yeah, that's like the old Woody Allen. Yeah. There's a bit about the, uh, I saw a great fifth grade production of uh, Streetcar Named Desire. And you just crack up because it's yeah. just like, you go, yeah. and you and when yeah. you're a kid, you write that stuff and sure. you don't think. When I was a kid, I was doing Death of a Salesman right. at, 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 you know, 14. <laughs> you were a great 14-year-old <laughs> Willie Loman. Willie Loman. <laughs> I felt the pain of, of being rejected. And so... From there, of course, you know, at the Second City thing, I, I said, oh, shoot, well, I, I, the only way I can stay on here is write. So I started writing for other people. And because of it, it taught me I can write. And then, you know, once you start crafting jokes and you know what's going on, I, I've always had a very comedic way of looking at life because it just, I see the ironies constantly. And that was growing up in San Diego, Mexican-American, 15 miles from the border. It's just full of irony. And, you know, and I would get stopped you know, going up to L.A. and San Clemente border checkpoint. So I, most comedy is counterculture. Yeah, and it's weird when you say that because, I mean, I lived in San Diego for uh, seven years, me and my ex-wife, and the gas lamp was first mm. starting up. And that's the thing, the San Clemente checkpoint driving up. I'd never, I'd never seen that. You know, yeah. I, it, was, it was a new thing. I mean, we'd take the trolley down to uh, TJ, you yeah. know, and it was just weird. It's like, wow, we're going to another country. Yeah. And it was, and just even the poverty when you go in because, you, you know, you're oh, not yeah. – you're not – I mean, I grew up in the suburbs. You know, I'm I'm a white kid. You yeah. know, I'm not used to that. And you go into the Philly, the projects, but even the projects weren't spread out. That was just a big tenement of oh, of, yeah. of a bad neighborhood. And uh, of even they weren't, I mean, it wasn't poverty like you see in Mexico, which was crazy. I mean, it, yeah. was, it was nuts. And in San Diego, I mean, you're so close and people don't know. It's like, it's, yeah, it's, it's right there. It, what it is, is they, they say, what's the best neighborhood in Tijuana? And they say it's San Diego. So it's it's normally I would go to Tijuana because my you know my grandfather had a place down there and and it it was shocking for me because it's it's poverty on a different level it's what happens is it's the mixture of the indigenous culture so you have a lot of Indians and indigenous people that have come to to Tijuana for a better life they're hoping to cross the border and that's for Asians too the best Chinese restaurants are in Tijuana so. You have a lot of people trying to cross the border and trying to come in America to follow their dreams. So you do, you do notice it and you do see it much more. I mean, it's not to say there aren't rich people in Mexico. The richest man in the world is a Mexican, you know, Carlos Slim. But when you do see the poverty, it's different. And, but, you know, I have to say something about that. I, I, you know, I, I grew up poor, um, and I never knew I was poor. Most people that are poor don't realize they're poor in a weird way because you're with your family, with your friends. It's only when you're around really rich people. Right. Then you go, oh. Gee, I, I don't have a yacht. I, you know, I did a, a show um, recently for a bunch of group of millionaires, and I, they invited me to the yacht. So I went to the yacht, 
and they had white people serving them. And I thought that was the most unique thing I ever saw. That's it. It's like, wow, I'm the only Mexican on the ship, and I got a white guy handing me a martini. It's really great. <laughs> so I, I looked at that, and I, I, you know, it's when you're close to, to riches when you really notice it. So there's a lot of dignity in with with people that don't have you know riches. And oh, yeah, my my mom's my mom grew up. Her parents were off the boat from Austria and Yugoslavia, and they mm-hmm. lived in a they owned a tap room, as my mom would say. It was yeah. a little bar, whatever it was, in the wrong side of the tracks in Philadelphia. And it's so funny because my dad was from the right side of the tracks. But, you know, years later you could tell when they had the finances, but my mom, when she would go, as my dad would say, she would drive. She'd spend more money in gas to save if a TV was like $20 cheaper. She would do that. And my father, we went shopping. He'd just be like, oh, this food, this food, this food. My mom would be... You know, oh yeah, shopping and I'm frugal. I mean, I, I sit there. It's like I, I eat fish. I cook all the, t- all the time. Yeah. I'll pick my fish out by what's on sale at Ralph's or Sprouts. I, I yeah. will never pay retail as it yeah. says for fish because it's like, well, I can have ahi next week when it's six ninety nine a pound and spend it in twelve ninety nine this week. Yeah, and it's you do notice that. I mean, my 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 wife is 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 pretty. You know, she comes from upper middle class. You know, family. So when she married me, she wanted me to go on a vacation. And I thought, what the heck's a vacation? Right. <laughs> like the family goes on a vacation? <laughs> I go, I'm Mexican. We're not going to go camping. So one time she she takes me to a you pick em farm with me and the kids. And we go to a, a, a place. And it hit me later as part of my act I talked about. It, is I, go, I go, who would take a Mexican <laughs> to a you pick em farm to pick fruit and pay for it? And it's all true. Because she, she didn't get it. She was like, right. oh, this is so culturally fun. We're picking fruit. And I'm like, this is exactly what I don't want to be doing. So, so you wrote for Mad TV. Yeah. For how long? Um, I didn't. I think it was like you know over thirty episodes or something. like okay, that. Okay. So yeah. now they were they came out and the Mad TV was um it was a funny ass show. Yeah. And I mean I remember I I know Blaine Capash you wrote for them earlier on, mm-hmm. and now when you wrote for them, I guess because it was actually successful because no one had really been after what SNL. No one got the success that SNL did, but I think Mad TV, I think a lot of people who were just tired of SNL dug Mad TV because it was very cutting edge. It was very, yeah. very funny uh, show. Well, you know, also it was, it, was, it was a much more diverse show. I mean, you think about it, we, we had African Americans and, and you know, people of color and you also had, behind the scenes there was a big gay presence as well. So you had people that were counterculture, n- normally and naturally, and you know myself being Mexican American, but say uh, David Salzman is executive producer. He's married to a Puerto Rican woman, wonderful woman, and so he got Latino. He would come to my shows, Latino logs, and things like that. So it really depends if people know the culture or if people are willing to step out of it. And you got Lauren Michaels, who's like a you know he's the, basically the, I I think Lauren Michaels is doing a great service for minorities. This is going to sound by because the minorities in New York are the white people, and he makes sure all the white people are represented on Saturday Night Live. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so he's, he's all about minorities. And, uh, and you can't do a show Saturday Night Live in New York and not have people of color. It's ridiculous. Well, I think, yeah, I, I think that's true. And it's so funny. I always, I always thought that way about comedy, too. You know, back in the day when I was doing stand-up, it was a mixed the comics were mixed and yeah. you're in Philadelphia which is mixed you can yeah. have African Americans and so you're not going to sit there if you want a consistent crowd of that is mixed you have to have mixed acts I mean yeah. you know African Americans and Latinos and whites are going to go to a show if it's only white people the only people are going to say are the whites yeah. and you know it's crazy so what was it was it weird for you for writing sketch TV because you came from a back you, you'd written a longer I'm sure longer oh sure I've written long form so, TV so what was it like writing uh, sketches sketches 
great because, you know, first of all, it's not as easy as people think, number one, you know, because it has a beginning, middle, and end. Um, it has, you want to end on a, on a nice, great joke. And it's, it's, it's taking something that could be a full-on half hour or could be an hour, and you're really distilling it down to a, a three- to four-minute sketch. So it's kind of a haiku of comedy. And, you know, you use franchisable characters or certain rules. I mean, I've been, been nine years at CBS now teaching the diversity program where I take all these unknown actors, um, you know, vice president casting Fern Orenstein and Josie Thomas and Nina Tass and all these people giving me this opportunity. And I put them in a program for three months and I work with them. And of those people have gone through that. This is a very diverse show. 16 are series regulars and three are on Saturday Night Live. So I've taught you know, sketch, because I come from sketch and living color and shows like that. But in living, but Saturday Night Live, when you look at that, it really lacks with the cutting edge. The, one of the best bits I ever saw in Saturday Night Live was Richard Pryor. He came on there and did the opening monologue and did one of the characters that he did in his act. And it was so groundbreaking. And I, th- I moments of, of comedy on television, I remember, like, you know, Freddie Prince or seeing him for the first time or Richard Pryor or, you know, Whoopi Goldberg or people like that really were the counterculture ethnic comedians and I even can't count uh, George Carlin because he you know I think it's almost people that are in sync with what the alternative is the comics have the great opportunity to be the other side of what conservative America is and we're, we're able to talk about things through comedy that other people can't talk about now I saw you also wrote on Townsend TV yeah wrote and Townsend tell, to Robert and that was Robert Townsend, Townsend. And, yeah and I still remember when the movie um Hollywood, the shuffle came yes, and, and I still think it's such a, f- and it's so funny. It's one of those movies that if you know someone who likes it, you're like, all right. But a lot of people don't know that movie. And I remember it used to play at a indie art house in Philly called the Ritz five. And Dominic Rara mm-hmm. was in it. Who's yeah. a Philadelphia guy. And it was so funny. And he, he was just had, he really had a different view of comedy Townsend. I think when he put, put that movie out. Yeah, Townsend was great because he, you know, he worked with guys like Keenan Ivory Wayans and, and, and uh, you know, I, I, wor- I worked for him and, uh, you know, and I, it was odd because he is much more, you know, Keenan always had a street vibe to him and, you know, his family was much more street. Townsend had kind of almost a, an upper middle class vibe to him. Well, he does that. He's the character of the English, you know, oh, and, oh, thing, that, and that was him. I mean, one time I told him, I said, hey, I'm, I'm doing, I want to do a sketch about the lotto and he goes, what's, what's the lotto? I said, come on, man. You go to a gas station, you pump your gas, you see the lotto. <laughs> and he said, oh, I don't pump my gas anymore. <laughs> he meant it. He meant that someone actually fills his tank. And Well, you know, what's funny is actually, th- th- what's funny about that is because my girlfriend just moved out here from New Jersey, and, and I've been going back and forth. And I grew up in New Jersey. And in New Jersey, you can't, it's illegal to pump your own gas, which pisses you off when you're sitting there in line and there's like five cars on each line. There's two yeah. guys and you're like I'm like I just want to get out and do it and if yeah. you get out they give you a damn ticket well that's what scares me about New Jersey because if it's if they don't trust their people to pump their right. own gas you know there's something really wrong <laughs> but it keeps people jobs too <laughs> that's I, the thing I guess so <laughs> but it's just weird because you come out here and it's like it's second nature and you're used to that and if you grew up out here to go to New Jersey you'd be like I don't, I don't want to pay more for my gas. You know, it's I, like, it's, I wouldn't. I would, I would feel freaky if someone came up and pumped my gas. And the gas is like seventy cents cheaper a gallon. <laughs> That's well, what's scary. I'm like, wait a second. I'm like, this isn't fair. Yeah, I guess it's, <laughs> it's it's putting people to work. I mean, for for me, I knew, you know, I've grown up in both worlds. I've had, I've you know, I've always had the I had the experience of being poor, the experience of being you know semi wealthy, I guess, or or whatever. But it's all about being happy who you are. You know, it really is. And I, I think, 
when you're happy with who you are, your your comedy's different. You you're really more accepting of people, and it's still you know going to be cutting edge and, and good. But there's a there's a hope in it, and I think all my work and all my comedy work it tends to be hopeful. Well, the cutting edge. You talk about cutting edge, and you did write for In Living Color. Yeah, that must have been uh, that must have been because I remember when that show came out, that blew everybody away. I yeah. mean, we were just sitting there going, "Wow!" And you know, it was just different, and it was, I mean. Dancing girls in the beginning and just oh, yeah. funny over the top stuff. What did was there any sketches you created on that that people would know? Sure. Or I mean, I, I wrote. You know, I, I, I remember a very famous sketch I did was uh, Eddie almost cleaned up my yard. It was basically, an, and Eddie's a friend of mine. You know, uh, it's Edward James Almost, and and it was about you know after the riots pick, picking it up. So it, you know, people thought that was that was controversial. I did Men on Film. I wrote one of those. I did, you know, Wanda. I did The Good, Bad, and The Very Ugly Woman with Mario Van Peebles. And so I would write a, you know, Juice Man. I I wrote a lot of different sketches like everyone did. We, we, at that time, we would write literally, I'm sure about, you know, 200 pages a week. You know, each one would write so many pages. And you had to have so many sketches and you'd pitch on Monday. And if they didn't like your pitch, you had to repitch. So that means if you all weekend long you thought about exactly what you want to write, and you had it all mapped out, and you walk in there, they go, "Nah, we don't want any of that." Then you that afternoon you had to pitch again, so you're constantly had to keep up material. And in a lot of ways, you know, Keenan gave me my first job in, in Hollywood. And I've always been very loyal to the guy, and and really been very thankful for him and his family. But um, it was always a lot of pressure. It was just a cauldron of pressure, and what people didn't realize. Um, is that none of us knew the show was that big a hit, as weird as it sounds. I think we were so wrapped up in the show, everyone on it, um, that we didn't even get out. I, I, I was there till like many, many times till three in the morning. Okay. So it didn't. Ha- I didn't have a normal life. In fact, one time, as far as I married, I I wanted to go on a date, and I met a girl, and I was you know I was backstage at the show, and she was you know an actress, and I saw her and I, I wanted to go out on a date with her, and I said. You know, I walked up in my sweats. I looked like I hadn't slept in three days. I was like, would you go out with me? <laughs> I just said it straight out. Right. And she said, sure. So I had my intern. I couldn't leave. So I had her build a, like, bring dinner in for me and her. So we had we had dinner on the Fox set. And it was like very, you know, he put candles out. It was very romantic. I was like, wow, this is incredible. But um, none of us had a normal life. None, none of us did. It was very tough. But it's very cool, though, to think that you did write for In Loving Color and Matt TV. So yeah. you, really, you were really on the... Uh cutting edge of yeah. sketch i mean you were really let's say i had to say the new wave because that's such a sound thing but you guys were in the new wave yeah. of sketch that must have really that must have made you very proud of yourself sitting there going wow i'm really one i'm working for these shows too like wow you know i'm making it and you were making i mean yeah. those shows made a difference but that was the thing because saturday night live i just said saturday night live was so white bread yeah i mean it was like you know for, even from when chevy chase first season falling and playing huh. the president and then i mean bill murray was great and, then, and the characters were all great yeah saturday night live is kind of the nantucket players right exactly I mean, it's, it's true though it's, it's true it's it's, true. it's, it's you know it's, they i mean the cutting edge was stuff that you go now you look at it and you go wow you know that wasn't cutting edge but now when you look back to see in living color and stuff like that you go wow it's really mm-hmm. it hold but the thing is i always say it holds up and yeah. that's the thing it's like I, I found i was going through cds recently my girlfriend moved in so i had to get rid of a bunch of stuff mm-hmm. i had a cd player in the kitchen and all that and i, I found my old woody allen cd oh. it's from 63, 63. I love, I love, yeah like I w- that would be me classic like i shot a moose yeah you know, it's, <laughs> but it still stands up and that's stands the thing up. you sit there and you go wow and that's within the, in living color it still stands up yeah it it you know it it was very much um you know those shows like i mean i think about it, i worked for second city so that was great 
um, Whoopi Goldberg, and then in Living Color and Mad TV. And I've, I've been very fortunate to have written on some of the best shows. It, it, but it's not like I have, you know, someone wrote me recently on Facebook or Twittered me at Rick Nara, and they said, you must be so happy with your life. You're so successful. <laughs> I thought, no, I don't think of myself as successful at all. Uh, you know, because I'm around so many people that are so huge. I mean, Jennifer Lopez was a fly girl in right. Living Color. I know. Yeah, it's so funny. Oh, yeah. And I, and I, I loved her. We'd, we'd, she'd hang out at my office, and she was really sweet. Just a great, great kid and great person. So I'm used to, you know, Jamie Foxx would come hang out. And, and so you start to get around so many people that are, mega mega famous and the it, it it actually humbles you you know doesn't I, if i was living in san diego working at a little comedy club there i'd probably have a huge ego uh, but being here in hollywood you don't because you're around you know multi-billionaires and people that are that are they're running studios right so it, it it's it's kind of like a more of a it's it puts you in check you work in hollywood you you're you're going to be in check and plus when you're a writer writing is writing is very you know, hard because you're putting your, they're, they're not just rejecting you, they're rejecting your skill. They're saying, right. we don't like this sketch. We don't like what you have said. We don't like any of it. We're rejecting it. And you get constant rejection. Most people don't realize in Hollywood, there's, you hear more no's than yeses. You know, the yes is what you wait for. But most of the time you, you go through your life and it's no, 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 no. And then eventually yes. And that's what's kept me alive. Is that my father told me a very, you know, great quote. He said, um, he was a door-to-door salesman. He goes, I went door-to-door all, all the time, Rick, but I would knock on the door, and every once in a while I would always hear no, but eventually I'd know I'd hear the, a yes. So he goes, you got to knock on a lot of doors before you hear that one yes, and that's what's kept me alive. Now, when did you start doing stand-up? Stand-up came, it was just, you know, me. I've been, I'm, you know, money, money tends to make me do things. And so um, I, I got, it was an evening at the Improv. They were doing that show A&E, Evening yeah. at the Improv. Remember that one? And they said, hey, we'd, we'd love you to come on Evening at the Improv. I was not a stand-up. I was a you know, performing art, artist, monologist, all those thousand things they called me. And in fact, one day someone said, Rick Nahara is a humorist. And uh, someone said, what does that mean? Like a stand-up comic. And I said, it means I don't have to be as funny as you. Right. Because <laughs> people can go, a humorist, you can go, we're going to have a few laughs and talk about things. Right. But a stand-up comic you gotta, is joke, joke, joke. You know, you got to kill the crowd. So uh, A&E offered it to me, and I went, oh, what would I do? So I just looked at my one-man show, and I pulled out the best jokes. And so I just put them in, a, and they had a teleprompter. So I would look at the prompter and say, you know, say, your, your sister. And I would go, oh, my sister's very dark. I'm, I'm very light. I have a lot of Spanish blood in me. She has a lot of Indian blood in me. I know that because growing up, I made her build me beautiful Spanish missions in my backyard. I stole her gold and gave her chicken pox and measles. And then laugh. Then I'd do the next joke. And okay. Then, so each one was there. So I was, I was able to do it. So I, I did seven minutes on A&E, and then everyone started calling me a stand-up. So then clubs would call up, or those opportunities would happen. But I've never considered myself really a stand-up, like, like road dogs, guys right. that they're on the, the road doing it all of that. I was on the road. I was on the road for some years, and uh, it's just it's crazy. It's, a different, it's, yeah. like, it's so different. I always see out here, especially now with the advent of Facebook and stuff like that, people mm-hmm. are like, Oh yeah, I'm going to the grind. I'm hitting the grind, you know. It's like you're doing seven minutes. You know, it's not like you know, you know they, it's they, they sit there and they, yeah. it's like this this thing. It's like I'm going on the road. It's like you're going to the road is not driving to San Diego and doing seven minutes. You know, and I know. I mean, like Rich Scheidner. I mean, he'll tell you stories when Rich Scheidner was on the road, and that's when the road was blowing up, and he had so many credits and. He would be out of town, and they would say, hey, this club just opened to this city. It's only uh, four hours away. Do you want to do a week? And they go, yeah. And they would just 
Oh yeah, and that's how, it, it was the heyday of that because you know, and part of the problem is now now people don't want to leave their homes. You right. know, they got Facebook, you got a thousand things they can do at home, and that was the time. Like uh, I knew Robert Schimmel, he was a, a great, great comic, one of the funniest people. Yeah, one of the, one of the greats, and and he wrote with me on, on in Living Color, and Rob would would tell me, he goes, you know, Rick. Um, uh, and he kind of, you know, took me under his wing and, and was m- almost mentoring me and uh, just a great guy. And so he would say, um, you know, when I go on stage, it's like, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Robert Schimmel, applause. And he goes, when I write, it's like, what the hell? Did you write this? This is horrible. <laughs> and so he went from really, he would be on the road making really good money on the weekends and, and doing quite well. And he went in, the, uh, in Living Color because he wanted to, to really start to write. But the era of the the road comic is not what it used to be. It's gone. I mean, it, it's a lot of comics I know. Some really big, fairly big names are telling me they can't make a living like they used to. I mean, it was used to be they just throw money at you, and then and then yeah. if you came out to L.A. and back then you got a development deal. And yeah. it's like I know guys who I mean who you know Jordan Brady had development deals and holding deals and stuff like this, and then he couldn't. CBS is saying, okay, we're going to give you this much money just so you don't audition for this thing. I mean, it was just, and they would just sit there. If you did good in Montreal or if you came out and had a Tonight Show back when yeah. the Tonight Show was big, you were basically, it's like, here, here's an open checkbook. It was just crazy. Oh, yeah. No, I, I had to, I, I've, you know, I wrote four, four, five pilots for the networks. And so I, I, I made a living writing pilots that would never get shot. You know, that was the weirdest thing to me because I would write this great pilot. I loved it. And that we say we love it. It just isn't time for Latino. That's what the normal ex- mistake, excuse I would get. So it it was a different era that, you know, and Living Color was part of that because a lot of those comics that were on the road were working for Living Color. You know, they really, I mean, you know, uh, guys like uh, uh, Steve Odekirk was a comic. You know, Jim Carrey, of course, a comic. Uh, you know, the, the, the Jamie Foxx was a stand-up. You know, everyone came from the stand-up. And you had to be able to go on stage and take an audience and, and really wow them. That was the only way you got respect from the other comics. And, and uh, you know, of course, I had to learn to go on stage and, and do that, which I've done. I mean, I, I had to show at the improv for six months of Latino Logs. That's how it really started, was in a comedy clubs. So I had, a, I had to take sketch and make it where people can drink and eat and snack right. and, and still heckle me and do whatever. And and I'd have to include that include that audience. So it it, it was the same place Cheech Marin did because Cheech would tell me he goes, when he would do it, him and Tommy Chong would be on a motorcycle with all their costumes over their bodies. So they'd have like six costumes. They tell me they'd he'd wear like six or seven costumes. They'd be on the back of a motorcycle going from club to club doing their their sketch comedy, which was and and that's really the best place it can be. I mean, you have to get in front of audiences, and that hones your comedy skill. So if I'm writing a TV show or doing something, I know the the joke that I write or the moment I write is going to hit because I've been in front of every single audience throughout the country. I mean, I had a show on Broadway in New York. I've had shows in Chicago. I've had shows here. So I know a national audience. And there's, that's, that's the unique thing that a, a road comic gives. Now, you mentioned earlier about your one-man show. And, now, yeah. and that was how long ago did you write that first one-man show? You know, I, I, my must have been 15 years ago. I did a Pain of the Macho at the Goodman Theater. It was John Leguizamo and myself and... Um, Spalding Gray. Those now, are the three. what made you sit there and go, okay, because you, you, you write all different things. What made you say, I wanted to write a one-man show? You know, because I, I had a sketch comedy troupe, and they kicked me out of it. Okay. <laughs> so it was like... <laughs> you like, the hell with them? It was, it was basically it. I mean, I got in Living Color, and the group I had was called Latins Anonymous, and we all worked well, well, you know, but, you know, it was a lot of infighting, and, and basically one day they... 
they're like, well, he's doing Living Color. We're going to bring another guy in, and we're going to replace him. And I'm like, first of all, I started this group. How can you replace the guy who started it? I know, it? yeah. It's like it's – But, but, but it, wasn't, it wasn't worth it for me to fight. They were like, oh, we're going to make this other guy the romantic guy. You're, you're, at that time, I was this, you know, the hot Latino guy. Um, and so they were like, well, we're going we're gonna to replace him with this other guy. It was uh, a guy that, you know, had balded head and not very, very, you know, romantic or charming, but – they wanted to give it to him, and it was kind of a weird thing. So I, I basically said, you know, I'm 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 in living color. Um, I had no guarantee whether I was going to continue with the show, but I said I'm going to have to go forward. So from there, in living color, it was miserable hours, really hard, and I had done a show at Sacramento Theater Company, and it was Latin's Anonymous, and they said we want to do another one of your sketch shows. And I said I don't have a sketch group anymore, and I said but I do have a one man show. And what happened is Salma Hayek had visited me in living color. And then I think it was Salma Hayek, it was, um, and you know Jennifer Lopez would, would hang out with me. So all the nerdy, ugly writers would look at me and go, "Man, he's the macho. Look at him. Wow, he's got Salma Hayek. Oh, wow, he's the macho." So it came a joke, and I was like, "You have no idea." <laughs> you know, it's like these were nerdy writer types. So for me, just having a woman coming in to visit me was like, I, "I'm a stud." I'm just, <laughs> and then the women look like that. Yeah, it's like, woo. Oh, I was, in, oh, I was, I was Antonio Banderas, <laughs> but, but they didn't realize they were the, the Latinas were calling me because I was working and they were then I was writing and they, they wanted to meet a writer. So it was it was very professional. I took Salma Hayek to Denny's, you know, that day. But so I remember that. So when they called me and they said, do you want to do a, a show? And I said, yeah, I have a one man show. And they go, what's the name of the show? And I go, it's called The Pain of the Macho, which was about machismo, how people look at you. And when you're the Latino guy, they I assume you're this macho guy. And so I, it was about that. And it took off as a Sacramento Theater Company. And, and then from there, it got me even more work. So that's been the best thing. Now you so yeah now as you performing and it was just with yeah. Leguizamo and Spawn, which now they were in the show or no it, it was, was a, it was a solo series so okay. they they said we're bringing the three best solo okay. artists in the country and they called me one of them which was great and they well, called especially with those two guys yeah I, mean, that's, that's I, was, I was bookended I was oh, like yeah. right in the middle and I was like boy do I have the best ch- I have the best chance to get destroyed no I was actually the third I was like I have now the best chance to get destroyed by critics right because John got great reviews and Spalding Gray of course gets great reviews. And then I came and I, I had I had a director who was directing me, but he got sick and so he couldn't come with me on, into Chicago. So I go to Chicago by myself without my director, going, "What am I going to do? How am I going to start this show?" So I had a, a nightmare that night that I woke up and I was in a jungle gym naked in front of the packed audience in Chicago, with all my costumes all over the stage. Did you have a lot of costumes? Yeah, I had a lot of costumes. I, I you know, I every character had a costume, which you know, I wasn't stand up; it was characters. So. Um, when that happened, I remember it. So I said, you know, that's how I'll start my show. And, and someone, goes, someone goes, what do you mean? Because they had no director. They're like, what, what is he going to do now? I said, I'm going to start the show where it's a riot. And I can't do the show. And I'm, they're getting in a substitute for me. And the whole show is a disaster. So I want to start with a disaster. Because I'd gone through the riots in, in L.A. And so it started off with a big riot. And it was, you know, you know it started off, you know, ladies and gentlemen, the role of the macho played by Rick Nahara will not be played by Rick Nahara tonight. I repeat, the role of the macho played by Rick Nahara will not be played by Rick Nahara tonight. And you hear this, oh, man, that's, that's some bullshit. What are you talking about? I can't, no, no, no way, no way. They start to riot. And so all of a sudden it turns into a riot. So I come out, and I'm in, like, my underwear, and, and you know, I have hair, you know, my curlers or all sorts of weird stuff. I don't look macho at all. And I go, you know, excuse, ladies and gentlemen, please, please. And Puerto Ricans stop inciting the Mexicans. Mexicans stop inciting the Cubans. Cubans stop inciting everyone. In the name of Edward James, almost stop. 
And so it stops. And I'd start the show going, I, I don't feel very macho. I, I'm, I don't fit your, your preconception. I'm so sorry. And it was an apology. And then from there, the show started. And, it, and people loved it. Now, where did you draw your characters from? Were they based on real people? Were they based on just fictional or well, from things you had written before? or Based on real people in a lot of ways. I mean, I, one was a, a guy crossing a border, Alejandro. Um, one was a... Because I, I worked with with undocumented, you know, people in in San Diego. You know, at that time they're called the illegal aliens, and so they're proudly illegal aliens. But you know, now it's undocumented. But they were undocumented, and they didn't have any, you know, papers, and they were illegal in, in this country, and they were terrified. So I would come work with these guys, but they all had a great spirit, and they all were hard workers. And so I, I take them to my father's cabin in in the Julian in San Diego. Good pie. Good pie. Very good apple pie. Good rhubarb pie. Rhubarb, too. yeah. <laughs> which is a diuretic, which I didn't know that. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. ate it. It's like, wow, what's going on here? What's going Yeah, well, <laughs> that is. But so they would cl- cut land and clear land in, in, my, in front of my father's cabin. So I'd hang out with these guys. And I, I, I grew to really, you know, think the, the world of them and, and love their work ethic and how hard a worker. You don't see a Mexican with a sign that says, we'll work for food. They're too busy working. And that's, those are the guys. So that was one of the characters. Another character was um, I had, it was a, it was a bus boy. It was a macho. It was like, you know, hello. Oh, my God, she's a blonde woman. I love you. <laughs> so, and I it came from the character that I, I used to watch this bus boy. That this guy rode a bike to and for the restaurant, but he was picking up on every blonde woman. <laughs> it was like, hey, baby, how you doing? So much confidence. I mean, me, I was driving a nice car, and I'm thinking, how does this yeah. guy <laughs> with a bike basically was he peddling these women home to his house and he'd be picking them up he'd be like you know you want decaf or caffeinate or you want me what's going on here yeah so they that was the macho so that character then so the so a lot of characters came from of course people i saw and 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 met and experiences happened to me that's the best writing now latino logs yes um, I that played on off Broadway, on Broadway, Broadway, on Broadway. and Broadway. it was uh, the what the, the Helen Hayes there. Helen Hayes there. Yeah, actually, I, I always say Broadway because it cost me a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's, well, it's just crazy. It's uh, now how did that come about? Now, first of all, uh, explain to the people what that show is about. Okay, the show Latino Logs is is a series of monologues about the Latino experience in America that I wrote, and it's had o- over 150 a- actors have gone through it from everyone from. Teach Marin to Eddie almost to, you know, um, Eugenio Derbez, who's a huge star in Mexico. Now, do people, after they heard about this play, did they seek you out to be in your play because everyone said, oh, this is good stuff? Or how did that happen? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it. I mean, Eugenio Derbez, who has a movie out, uh, it's called Instructions Not Included. It's done terrific box, obviously. He's a huge star in Mexico. Actually was in L.A. one day and saw my show. And he said, I'd love to audition for it. And so I, I put him in the show. I, uh, he didn't even need an audition. I mean, I, I didn't know who he was because I really didn't watch Spanish television, but all my cast knew him. And so he did the show. And he did the show, must have been two years. He was in the show and led all the way to Broadway. And so we had to work very closely together. So I used Spanish stars and I used English um, people like Edward James, almost in the English market. So there's a different Spanish market, English market. Now, in the Spanish market, was in was it in Latino or was it spoken? I was in, in Spanish. In Spanish. <laughs> yeah. Latino would be ec, I'm ec, sorry, yeah, ec tu amane. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it was in Spanish. So. Totally Spanish. It was in English. It was, it, but what's great is a lot of the Spanish stars in the Spanish language, like guys, women like Sofia Vergara or Henry de Bez, people like that wanted to cross over. So I would get stars, huge stars from Mexico, would actually want to be in the show. Jaime Camille was one, one of the best. And when I got to Broadway, then I put people like, you know, Raul Molina, um, El Gordo de la Flaca guy, and different people wanted to be in it. So it was, it was a great bridge between 
Spanish language stars and English language stars and also for unknowns because I would one of the girls in, in New York um, Shirley Rumerick was Puerto Rican that was unknown totally unknown I gave her a chance to be on Broadway so it gave opportunities for people so that show was a series of monologues and it came about that I got to Broadway it was, you know the story is I'll tell you the true story I, I, I was told that I, I, I did a movie called uh, Pledge This with Paris Hilton and all sorts of different stars, Jackass and all those guys, Steve-O. Um, and uh, when I'm doing the show, I also had my show Latino Logs there. So someone saw my show Latino Logs, the producer, and his name was Jack something, I forget what it was. And he's like, I'm going to make you a star. I'm putting Latino Logs on Broadway. It's going to Broadway. So Andy was there, and I tell him, Andy, we're going to Broadway. And I tell the cast, we're going to Broadway. This guy was a multimillionaire own stadiums, you name it. It was just amazing. He had this wife that looked like a porn star. I mean, he had artwork in his house. He was, ro- drove a Rolls Royce, the whole bit. Unfortunately, he was being indicted by the SEC for, like, fraud. Okay. <laughs> like 700 million or some <laughs> huge number. So he ends up going to Brazil. So he goes to Brazil. And I'm like, I, I, I have, I'm not going to Broadway, I guess. <laughs> the producers fled the country. And, um, you know, and so I promised you, Henny, we're going to Broadway. I promised a lot of people. And I just refused to look stupid. So I said, I'm going to get a, a Broadway house called, uh, um, it was uh, Town Hall, which is a Broadway-style house. It's a little, about 1,200 seats. A big house, and it's, it's near Times Square. And so I said, if I do my show there, I'll show everyone that I can work on, on Broadway. So I put my own money into it. So I actually invested all my money. Didn't tell my wife. And I put 30000 down or something like that to get the place and fly out the people. And I'm like, it, the first week, um, as I'm there, I'm going, where's ticket sales? There were only 50 tickets sold four oh, days God. before it opened. And I was like, oh, man, this is horrible. <laughs> so I said, oh, yeah. I'm losing everything. Now, Latinos are walk-up audiences, so I know that. So I go, okay, i got to get the word to Latinos. So I go on uh, Vasalón de la Mañana, was this show in the morning, and I have Eugenio. I said, Eugenio, you speak Spanish better than me. Get to get on that show. And he's, he's well-known with them. So I said, you got to get Eugenio on the show. I'm calling up. you got to get him on the show. And they go, well, look, we'd love to have him on the show. We just don't have time. And I go, he's outside your door. And I put him outside their door in the radio. And they literally open the door, and there's Eugenio. And they bring him on. <laughs> so Eugenio was great. And he just talked up the show and said you had to go see it. And it, it by the time we sold out, we're at, you know, we, I think we sold out. And Robin Tate, the producer, produced John Leguizamo and George Lopez, saw saw the, the numbers and saw the show and said, this is a great show. And he got behind, behind it. So we started doing a 35-city tour. And, um, you know, great man. Robin, I'm always, you know, thankful for what he did, you know, because we got to Broadway, and it was Eugenio's dream and my dream, and it opened, and it did a 137 performances with an extension. No Latino show had ever done that before. And... Uh, it worked, and the reviews were great, except for the New York Times. The New York Times said the audience was in stitches, but we—I just didn't get it. You know, you—you—you you, you grew up in San Diego. I don't know if you remember. There used to be a there used to be a critic for the Tribune who's been around forever. His name was David Elliott. Uh huh. Yeah. And that was the same thing. The guy would sit there and like rip apart an Adam Sandler movie. It's like, no, you know, it's like if you don't get it, it doesn't mean other people don't yeah. get it. You know, if you don't, it's not. You know, and that's what's so funny because comedy, I mean, how often is comedy, you know, it's so hysterical that a critic's going to like it. It doesn't happen a lot. No, and it, the most hysterical comic c- critics are trained not to like. Right. Because to them, it's like they see, you know, a lot of times people would discount my writing because they would go, you know, he's funny. 
like even this book Almost White that just came out that I wrote it's a funny book you know but it's very serious and it's a lot of deep deep topics most comedians are are deal with drama and and our comedy is is our we're so we see the world so depressingly real and so just we're all going to die and you know Woody Allen's a prime example right so because of it we turn around and we say you know something we want to give the alternative and we want to make people laugh we want to bring joy in this world and that's what comedy is to us it's our cure for the ails of the world so a lot of people like that New York Times critic, you know, I just put on, I put on the billboard, the audience was in stitches in New York Times. I didn't add, I didn't get it. Right. And the truth is, I've never had an audience member who went to the Latino logs that didn't like it. You know, most, they might find a fault here or there. I, you know, some very politically correct people might go, oh my God, you're, you have a, a Cuban prostitute on stage monologue. Well, prostitution's a problem in Cuba, and I have that character. So there's different characters. There was a drug lord on stage. Oh my God, a drug lord. Well, drug lords are a problem. There's a, there's a war in Mexico where 50,000 people, have, over 50,000, have died. There's a narco war. So those are things. But I, I take it on and do it in such a unique way that audiences walk out feeling great and standing ovations. What is the one city, because you said it played in with over 30 cities, yeah. what is the one city that it played in that really kicked, it kicked the city's ass, which you may have thought it may not have done well in? Was there any cities like that? Because, you know, there is, you know, in the, when yeah. you get to the Midwest, you know how it is. It's like, is there any cities that really just surprised you? Because I did a show in Cedar Rapids years ago doing comedy. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, this is going to suck. They were one of the hippest crowds around. Yeah, you know, it, it happens a lot. I, I try never to underestimate my audience. I really overestimate them. And that's good because they, they live up to it. You know, Portland, Oregon was one. I thought this would never do. <laughs> Portland, Oregon. I'm like, Portland, Oregon. And sure enough, you know, it's funny because all the Latinos that are in Portland, Oregon came to the show and all the Anglos came. So it's, I've, it's always been a mix of 60 40, you know, 60% Latino, 40% other. And uh, the, it did great. You know, I mean, beautiful theater in Portland. And, and the other city was probably the biggest, my biggest hit city has been, always been Chicago. You know, Chicago, which always has, has, it's odd because it's such a mix between the East Coast and the West Coast. And you have Puerto Ricans and you have Mexicans and you have all these different groups. But in Chicago, I have to tell you, has been the nicest city to me. And, and New York, those are two places that, you know, in L.A., it's always, people expect me to be good and they, they, they love it. But it, it's, you're never a prophet in your own city. Right. And in, in, but when I travel and go around, uh, you know, I was just in New York and, and I was on New York One and they called me a Broadway star. I'm like, oh, Really? I was like, yeah, you're on Broadway. You start to play. It's successful. You're a Broadway star. But I didn't think that way. Right. You know, so it's when you get out of cities that people appreciate your work. And, and I, think, I think Portland was one. And Seattle was another. I was surprised in Seattle because I thought it would be all hipsters. And they were, but hipsters did love the comedy. Now your book, Almost White. Now that you just, I know you're just on Tavis. You're on Tavis Smiley, weren't you? Yeah, no, no. Tavis Smiley. And now you've been doing a book tour. Mm-hmm. And I know you're doing some speaking engagements. Yeah. Now tell the people what the book is about. Almost White is a book about being Latino in, um, in America. It's called Almost White, Forced Confessions of Latino in Hollywood. I didn't want to talk about Hollywood, and, and this, the publishers really forced me to really tell my stories because I thought no people would really be interested. And actually, I've been surprised because the reviews have been really great. And people, honestly, when they get the book, they get on Amazon.com or they get it in the Borders or other places. I get notes from people all the time saying, I just read your book. I just finished it. Oh, my God, I love this book. So it's it's been a pleasant surprise to me because I've never written a, uh, I've written plenty of plays and shows, but this is the first time I actually took a book and it's about a memoir of my life from the beginning, 
from what happened to me in the beginning. I, I had a, a big health issue that last year. It was a year and a half ago. What was your health? Because I just went through a big health issue. What was yes. yours? Mine was I had pneumonia. I didn't know it. So it spiked into a seizure. You oh, know, wow. the weight, you know, the the heart and everything else and, and basically shut down. So I collapsed, hit my head in my home where no one was with me. Everyone was gone. And so m- my wife came in and found me laying in a pool of blood. And so the ambulance came. And to me, you know, it's weird. When, and I was in a coma, in and out of coma for two weeks and in ICU. It's a really traumatic experience. And I wanted to write about it. it. It took me a while because when you get hit in the head that badly and you have, you know, frontal lobe damage, all these different things going on, um, it's like what soldiers go through. You know, the PTSD, you know, they, they, when an explosion happens, you're, you're afterwards, I, you know, I had a lot of rage, I had a lot of emotions. I had years, like, years ago, but this is not my health, yeah. but years ago, I had a, uh, I was in the hospital with a bleeding on the brain. I just saw the bump. I had a contusion. It was a crazy mm-hmm. story what happened, yeah. but I know the same thing. And it's just, and as you get older, it's different, you know, so yeah. it's, it's crazy. Yeah, no, it was crazy. And, and my wife, um, you know, when, of course she was there at my side and she said, you know, you have to change your life. It was a big thing. And I thought about it, and I said, you know, I, I, w- I was overworked. I was, you know, just always on the edge. And I finally went, okay, you know something? I want to write a book, and I want to tell my story. So it's a very personal book, but it's also a very funny book. And so it follows you from, I mean, does it start off from, the- from the ICU all the way to, to present-day Hollywood? Now, with the ICU, and this is so funny because I went through, I, I was diagnosed with congestive heart failure a while ago, and I'm actually wow. writing a one-man show about that, and I just had to change my lifestyle completely. I used to smoke cigarettes. Guess what? No more smoking. Yeah. I used to drink coffee. I drink decaf now. But as, as we get older, it's so funny because it almost it hits you in the face that we, you know, we're not, we're not uh, indestructible. I think for a lot of us, especially when you live out here, yeah. because you know, there's no... I mean, you know, you work in the entertainment business and you mentor these uh, yeah. kids and all. We are, it's not like when I went back to my 30-year high school reunion, everyone's, you know, they're all 50 hanging out together with yeah. their kids. It's, we, we encompass so many different people in different ages. Yeah. I think sometimes we forget that we're not uh, oh, I went indestructible. To, you know, yeah, no, when I was a single guy in Hollywood, I was indestructible. You know, drove a Mustang convertible and was out you know all the time i was in vegas and i was <laughs> rated as a, a player who played craps i actually got rated so they'd give free rooms and all sorts of cool things so this is they it was amazing but it, it wasn't conducive to marriage and, and kids and all this stuff and and when i you know i look back on my life i've i'm probably the best thing i ever did was have children you know they're 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 great they drive me up the wall half the time you know but i have to say they're 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 so beautiful and, and wonderful it's you know, you, you, you begin to look at life differently. I mean, after that happened, I literally saw death. I mean, I was gone. And I came back, and I said, when I come back, what am I doing here all the time? So everything has more meaning because we all realize we have an expiration date, whether we know it or not. And so every moment in life you have to truly grasp and you have to enjoy. And and I enjoy life a lot more. You know, I mean, it, it's tough at times. Um, it, was, it was hard recovery because I went right from – a hospital to the, uh, speaking at the World Bank, you know, so Tavis Smiley got me a job speaking at the World Bank. So here I'm speaking at the World Bank, literally a week before I was, I was in a coma. I was in the hospital. So I didn't even have time to truly recover. It's taken right. me about a year and a half 
where now I, I would say, I when people go, oh my God, when they see me, it's like, Rick, oh my God. And I'm thinking, what are you emotional about? You almost died. I'm like, oh yeah, that, that coma thing that happened. But you do forget about it because you, you move course. on. You sit there and and it's funny, it's always the people who sit there. Like when I when I got out of the hospital, you know, I, I lost, because yeah. I had to change, but I lost 20 pounds. Okay, now I'm a thin guy as it is. Yeah. And everyone's like, oh my God, you look, are you sick? You know, and you sit yeah. there and you go, I I'm not anymore, but thank you for reminding me. Like with the head, yeah. people go, "Oh, it's like, well, yeah, a year and a half ago." But it's just so funny how people react. They still yeah. they don't know how to react to it. No, they don't react, and they're reminded of it. I mean, they, for me, it was hard because, but it's also good. I mean, I, I think when a miracle happens in your life, like you know, I'm sure Lazarus, after being raised from the grave, came back and went, "Oh man, I got to do my taxes. This is nuts." <laughs> you know, so it's like you get into real life and then in real life I'm going, you know, I'm going, "Oh, yeah, I almost died." And but you have taxes. You have people that go, you know, I mean, I, uh, you owe the IRS, you owe people. You you know, someone said, "Would you, you lose your memory?" And I lost a lot of memory actually. And I said, "Well, I only I, I was the problem is I I have most of my memory, but I've forgotten people that I owe money to, right. or people I don't like. It's weird." <laughs> yeah. So now the book, when you write it, it's so it's like your memoir. Now that's got to be scary because basically you are going to have critics look at it, and it's yeah. like if someone sits there and, as you said, with a no when you when it's your craft. Okay, now this is not only what you do and your creativity and your craft it's your life so it's 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 yeah. like even it's one more than when they say yeah. this this skit we don't want it what's that did that did you think about that when you're writing oh, yeah. it going oh no, man I, and did I, that did, did did you uh start not start writing right away did you I, procrastinate or I, no I, that was one of the scary things i mean but i imagine i, I used to think of myself probably the worst thing would be a porn star because they would, if you lose your porn star audition it's like it's really you. Right. It's like you know. It's like can you just whip that out? Ah, you're not going to use it. You're yeah, too small. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Eh, no, it's what too is fast, that? Too, too fast. Too fast. Yeah, get out, get out of here. So it's you. You're really being judged. And when you write a book, it's the same thing. You're you're. They can sit there and say, you know, I I love the book. I just felt his life was boring. So then I love the book. I just don't like Rick. So it is you. And and it is it is you know terrifying. But then again, you know, being a stand up and being a comic and being out in the public. You're constantly be judged. I, I have people walk up to me, and uh, they'll go, "Oh my God, I thought you were better looking." <laughs> they just write out and say it. <laughs> what? Yeah, I thought you were better looking, I, or something like. I heard you on the radio, and you sounded great, but now you don't look that good. <laughs> or I thought you were thinner. You look fat. I mean, they would actually say that to me. Like, like it's like walking up to a car and going, "You know, I don't like that model. Yeah. That's just a." Uh, if they had leather seats, maybe, yeah. but that looks old. You know. So you get used to it. You get used to that, and then you realize, okay, you know, this is part of what comes with the game. You know, it, it's it's you. There are always be people more famous than you. There'll always be people better looking than you, and there'll be people worse looking than you, and better and and less money than you, and less famous. And you can't concentrate on other people. You have to look at your life, and it's what you do with your own life defines who you are as a man. How long did the process take you to write the book? From from when you decided you were going to do it to actually finishing it with going back in the edits and stuff like that, for, for where you felt satisfied with it? It was about a year, okay. and even as as uh, you know, it was it was about a year. And the edit, editor I had was you know Sarah Woodruff, she's a great editor. She would you know she's African American, and you know when actually I you know it's funny, yeah. 
I, she would ask me questions about the book. Well, what does this mean? I'm thinking, it's so simple. It's menudo. It's right. like chitlins <laughs> in water. You know, what's the hell? You know, it, I would, I would really, you know. But what she did is she forced me to put it in a way that other people could understand, other okay. cultures and other people. So that was great. I mean, she. She did the R. Kelly book. You know, for me compared to R. Kelly, that's a big stretch. Yeah. <laughs> so, so she, but her main thing was always, you know, Rick, um, tell that story. Tell the, tell the one that makes you uncomfortable telling. And so, you know, at one point in the book, I, I talk about being in the ICU and I'm in my, in my, my bed. And I go, you know, I, I need to get out of bed to go to the bathroom. And the nurse comes in. She goes, just go in bed. We'll clean, it up. We'll clean you up afterwards. I'm like, are you yeah. kidding me? <laughs> Are you are you taking away all my dignity? There's no, no way. You're already in an ugly robe. I'm in an ugly robe. And are you? It's like I'm. I so I had to crawl to the bed to bathroom, and I was like, I will not. I'm crawling to the you know. And then they'd wake me up late at night, and they'd be like, Oh, you need a shot. I go, Don't wake me for that. No, that's what I hated. I would sit there. You finally get to sleep because you're nervous, yeah. and then at like five in the morning, we're trying to check your uh, your vitals, Mister Cooper. I'm like, I finally just got to sleep, and you're yeah. waking me up. Yeah, and they, they for me was they'd give me shots in my stomach which you know and they would they would go you know um you know mr nara we're gonna they wouldn't call me just patient number one <laughs> and they would come in and and give me shots or in my i was in the icu there they would have code blues i'd hear that all the time and i, I, yeah, I know so it's... i would wake up with a code blue going is it me <laughs> you know am, <laughs> am i dying <laughs> so it, it was a lot of a lot of disease was going through the icu and so at one point there you know they, they'd move me because there were there was a a raging, some sort of raging disease. I don't know what it was, but they were like, hey, "We're gonna need to move you." <laughs> so whatever it was, it was like death was keeping every room right. toward me. So it it was, you know, in the book I talk a lot about, you know, it's it's there's a lot of me talking about the ICU, and but it's done comedically. I mean, at one point they bring in a little dog, to you know, at one point they go, "Here's a little dog," and it's supposed to be therapy. And I'm like, you know, I don't even like this dog. What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> so on my bill, I think I got billed $700 for therapy. I'm like, that dog cost me $700? I know. Are great. you kidding me? We, we got to wrap up soon. Okay. I, I want to thank you for coming on. Well, thank you. No, no, tell everyone uh, what, what's going on with you. What, what, what's coming up in the near future? You know, in the near future, I'm going to be working with Oxnard College. I've got some, I'm doing a, a very much thought-provoking um, um, show. And every I'm going to do a, um, Latino Thought Makers at Oxnard College, and it's, I'm really excited about that. It's really good. So if you're in Oxnard or and you want to go out to Oxnard, the first show is actually uh, December um, or November November 16th, this Saturday. I'll have Elisa Valdez Rodriguez, who's a great writer. She wrote Dirty Girl, Dirty Girl Social Club. And then I just finished a pilot with CBS, a uh, sketch comedy show, so I hope it goes. And then uh, I'll be doing Nahar uh, America, which is my other show, which is kind of a, a Latino Colbert. And um, got the book, and, you know, I keep working. <laughs> Check out my website, www.ricknahara.com, or Twitter me, at Rick Nahara, or Facebook me, and uh, I'll keep you up abreast on, on all the stuff I'm doing. But a lot of good stuff. Uh, and now the book is called Almost, Almost White. White, and now that can be found on, like, download Kindle, down everywhere. Yeah, Kindle, Amazon, Amazon.com, you can get Almost White. I recommend the book, not because I wrote it, because I really think it's, it's, it's personal and real, and it'll tell you about Hollywood. 
That's good, though. That's, see, that's, that's good. And, and you're a fellow guy who went through the ICU, so we know yeah, exactly what's going on. It's the scariest thing. People, I want to give a quick uh, plug out to my friend, Du Carpalani. Go check his book out. Right now, it's on free. It's on a free download on Kindle. It's called The Naughty Boy That Saved Christmas. It was ranked number one on Amazon Kindle's Christmas books last week. He's a very good friend of mine. And the story in a nutshell is it's a uh, one of the naughtiest boys in the world. Max Douglas has whisked away to the North Pole by Elliot the Disgruntled Elf. Max must now help Elliot build naughty toys to ruin Christmas, or will all the arts and crafts help Max find Christmas in his heart and to save the day for one and all. So go on to Amazon.com, search one, uh, search the title, The Naughty Boy Who Saved Christmas, and I just downloaded it today. I'm going to look at it when I get home. And also, there comes with a coloring book uh, companion if you want to buy that, and 50% of those proceeds go to uh, Association for the Arts for Children. So I want to thank my guest, Rick Nahara. Check him out at Nahara, ricknahara.com. Nick, I called you Nahara. I, I said, uh, you said it per- perfectly. Okay, because I wasn't thinking. I was never thinking. If I want to get really, sp- it'd be like Nahara. Okay, but I don't want to be an Arabic war yeah. cry. So it's Nahara. And people follow him at Twitter. Follow me at Twitter at Cooper Talk. I'm always tweeting funny stuff. Also, send me an email at Cooper at Indy100.com. I'd love to hear from you. Go on to Stitcher Radio or iTunes. Type in one word. Cooper Talk and you will find my episodes and actually on all those things just like my website coopertalk.net I just posted my 200th episode it was uh, last week with Kate Flannery from uh, The Office she was a great guest a fellow Philly person and yeah just keep please keep listening uh, comedy wise I'll be this Saturday at Bogies in Redondo Beach and next Tuesday right down the street here in Burbank on Olive at Michael's. So send me an email, cooper at indy100.com I'm Steve Cooper I'm only as hip as my guests remember this you need to drink your water Take your vitamins and eat your vegetables. And you guys have a wonderful weekend. It's time for me to get lunch.